Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. It's Monday morning, which means that we have a new episode for you today. I'm Andy Alexander, and I'm very excited to introduce our episode for you today. In this episode, Matt Sheedy, who has been a longtime friend of the RSP and appeared in a number of episodes over the years, is now on the other side of the microphone, so to speak. And today he is talking with Charles McCrary, who you will recognize from a recent episode of Discourse about Charlie's recent book, Sincerely Held, American Secularism and Its Believers, which was published by Chicago in 2022. They trace a cultural history of sincerely held beliefs in the U.S. and explore how discourses of religious freedom have evolved in recent years. This episode provides a carefully considered history and development of sincerity and secularism in the U.S. sociopolitical landscape and will be a great resource for anyone interested in secularism discourses and the role of sincerity in social and racial governance, particularly with regard to religious freedom discourses. Matt and Charlie cover quite a lot of ground in their discussion, so let's go ahead and turn it over to them. This is What Sincerity Got to Do with American Secularism with Charles McCrary, interviewed by Matt Sheedy. Take it away. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. My name is Matt Sheedy, and I'm a visiting assistant professor uh, in the North American Studies program at the University of Bonn in Germany. And today I'm joined with Charles McCrary to discuss his new book, Sincerely Held, American Secularism and Its Believers, out in 2022 with the University of Chicago Press. Charles McCrary is a postdoctoral research scholar at the Center for the Study of Religion and Conflict at Arizona State University. You can find his writing in academic journals, as well as popular outlets, including The Revealer, Religion and Politics, and The New Republic. This fall, he will be an assistant professor of religious studies at Eckert College in St. Petersburg, Florida. Welcome, Charlie. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be on with you to discuss your uh, your new book. I really, really enjoyed this book. And um, I thought I would start things off with a basic question for you, just to orient the readers to your work. So in the introduction, uh, you describe your book as a cultural history of sincerely held religious beliefs. So my question is, how did you get into this topic in the first place, which includes, among other things, uh, religion and law in the United States, questions of sincerity, uh, religious freedom, and secularism. Yes. Um, well, first, um, thanks again for having me. And um, I'm really excited to, to talk with you specifically because we've been in conversation for um, kind of a lot of years now. Um, and, you know, your expertise in secularism and post-secularism, you are an ideal type of reader for, for me. And um, I should just say the questions um, coming up, I think are, are really evidence of a sharp, um, good reading. Um, and so, so I'm looking, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, me too. As far as how I got into this topic, I mean, you can back engineer, um, <laughs> you can make life look a lot more linear than, than it actually was and uh, think about how things made sense. But really it was just, there was a lot of stuff I was thinking about and it all kind of just got knitted together eventually. Um, but I think it ended up making sense. But there's a few key strands here. One was I was sort of planning a dissertation on con men and frauds and sort of investigations in the 19th century, stage magicians and spiritualists and people trying to debunk them and all of that kind of stuff. 
And then at the same time, I was getting really interested in religious freedom in the contemporary US. Um, the Hobby Lobby case had just happened, if, if people remember that, where a for-profit corporation said it violated their religious freedom to provide contraceptive health care to their employees, and they won. And so this phrase about sincerely held religious belief was popping up a lot. And I realized that sincerity was becoming really important for religious freedom. And I was studying questions about sincerity and insincerity and fakery and all of that. And so in a very roundabout way, this book was a way of mashing those two things together and pulling out those threads. So, so that's what I mean by a cultural history of sincere belief or of the sincere believer as a sort of character. You know, in the U.S., in order to be recognized as religious, or at least one of the best ways to be recognized as religious, is to be this individual sincere believer. Like that is the figure of the person who receives religious freedom protections. If you want some sort of an exemption or an accommodation from the government, you need to say, I am an individual with a sincere belief. But first of all, why? And then how do we determine who counts? You know, what's religious, what's sincere, all of those sorts of questions. And so that's a legal question. And so this book is in some ways a legal history, but it's also a cultural history. How did people in the US come to value sincerity? How did they come to equate sincere belief with true religion? What are the kind of Protestant shapes that that took and, and so on? So it's, it's that kind of tangle of questions that got me into this. Okay, great. One thing I wanted to ask you at the outset, just to orient our readers, the Religious Studies Project is, is very interested in questions of, of method and theory. And one thing that struck me at the outset in your introduction is you say that the book takes up uh, Talal Asad's question, and I'm quoting here, what is the connection between the secular as an epistemic category and secularism as a political doctrine? Uh, and I'm wondering why you flagged Assad, which many readers uh, will know as a, a significant uh, anthropologist of religion who's done a lot of pioneering work on how we think about the relationship between religion and secularism. Why, why relate yourself or position yourself in relation to Assad at the outset here? What, is, what does he do for you? Yeah, there's a lot I could say here, but I think most basically, I'm interested in a sort of, I guess what's getting called critical secularism studies, um, which I don't know. I mean, there's, first of all, there's so much terminology here and people use things to mean slightly different things and so on. So I'll try to be really clear about what I mean, which I think is a generally Assadian kind of framework. Um, but I, I don't know. I'm not doctrinaire. So I, uh, what I what I mean is I am interested in how secularism, which is to say the management of religion and sort of the, the regulation of religion, which includes imagining some things to be religious and some things not to be, right? How that is enforced and what the politics of that are, how that works as a as a sort of political doctrine. So I take that to be the kind of Assadian side of critical secularism studies. So people like Saba Mahmoud and others, which I think the field of religion and law or religious freedom in the US is really ripe for that kind of analysis. And um, some people have done it, um, sort of uh, scholars like Tisa Winger and Finbar Curtis and, and some others. But yeah, what I'm, what I'm trying to get at there is the connection between that governance, which is to say secularism, that system of politics, which says, you know, this is a secular nation. We base our laws on universal principles or non-sectarian principles at the very least. And at least in the U.S., try to give some sort of 
not special treatment or privilege, but some sort of protection to religious people and religious groups that religious believers get to do certain things because their conscience is important. And so that I, I want to cast that as a style of governance, as a style of rewarding certain populations and in turn, always punishing or, or at least ignoring others. Right. So that's the governance side of it. But the other part of the question is, how is that connected to the secular as a set of ideas, a set of assumptions, sort of more cultural history thing. Um, and so that's that's what I'm trying to bring together. And I, and I feel like a lot of the secular studies that I'm influenced by in the U.S. are written by literature scholars, especially 19th century literature. So people like Lindsay Rexon and Tracy Fessenden, John Modern, Emily Ogden, who have written these really wonderful studies of secular imaginaries and how people determine what is real and sort of the decline of doctrine and the rise of science. And so, you know, all of these sorts of things, but there's always this question about, okay, how does that make its way into the law or into politics? How does that, what does that have to do with whether or not you win your case or not? Right. And what is this question about whether you win your case or not have to do with all this other stuff? So I, I'm trying to do both and, and tease out those connections, which which I take to be generally the sort of project that Assad is gesturing toward in Formations of the Secular. Yeah, great. So when when we were communicating uh, uh, before this podcast, um, uh, I told you that on my reading, uh, there seemed to be three distinct sections to the text, even though you don't devise it uh, uh, that way. And uh, I thought it'd be good to maybe give the readers a general overview of this history that you chart from the late 19th century all the way up into the present as a way to understand how questions of religious freedom and sincerely held beliefs deeply inform not just the ways in which we conceive of religion and secularism, but also shape a certain type of uh, subjectivity or, or, or sense of self. So in, in chapters one to three, you look at uh, late 19th and early 20th century cases that were crucial in shaping modern understandings of religion, belief, and what you call its others, so fakes, knaves, and, and fools. And all of this is talked about as, as central to the formation of a certain understanding of the secular or, or, or secularism. And uh, I, was, I was particularly intrigued by chapter two and the figure of Anthony Comstock. Um, I want to even say a few things about these chapters in general, but I was I was hoping you could you could speak a little bit to that chapter on on Comstock, and I'll I'll read you two quotes here that really stood out to me as as interesting. So, uh, one of them reads as follows: Sometimes secularism is a police operation, and it often takes an inquisitional approach. So this idea of an inquisition is embodied in this figure of Anthony Comstock is a really interesting framing. Um, and on the question of Comstock uh, and the secular, you also write, he was, by most accounts, not secular. But I am arguing that the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, which, which he was at the helm of, enacted a doctrine of political sector, uh, secularism. By this, I mean that the society enforced a particular conception of religious or moral subjectship, documenting and policing persons by classifying them presenting these regulatory projects as universal goods rather than sectarian projects and used public and state means to do so. So yeah, I was wondering if you could say a little bit about these chapters uh, and hopefully about Comstock uh, in particular and why he was such an interesting figure for you. 
Thank you. Um, yeah, I should say the original version of the dissertation, um, which was not quite the last version, um, of which I think like zero sentences have actually survived. So it's not totally relevant, but um, it, it actually, this, this piece of it um, was, was the whole project. It was, it was going to end in the 1940s with this, this court case that I opened up with the Ballards. Um, because my question was, you know, how does, how does all this investigation and fakery work and how does that kind of set the cultural terms for then, what becomes this legal standard of the, of sincerely held religious belief and the sincere believer, you know, and then I ended up like doing a lot more after that, but, but that was the sort of question. So just broadly what I'm doing in these sections, um, they're in, in this section and these first three chapters is trying to explain the cultural context in which an emphasis on sincerity arises and also becomes linked with true religion. And I think there's a lot of ways we can do this. I mean, this is sort of the tricky thing about cultural history, especially when you have so many potential sources, is that there are a million things you could talk about. Um, if your topic is like, why do people investigate each other? And why do people sometimes lie? Um, yeah, we, there are a million ways you could write these chapters. I chose to write about Comstock partly because I think he shows... So I, I should give a little bit of background. Anthony Comstock, um, for readers or for listeners who don't know, was this uh, guy... In, he was the postmaster general, um, worked for the, the post office in the 1870s. He was active up through 1915 when he died. But he's most famous for what are called Comstock laws, which uh, might be coming back <laughs> in some form or another in certain parts of the U.S., um, which were anti-obscenity laws, namely not being able to send obscene things through the mail. So what he mostly has in mind is pornography very broad definition of pornography, um, but also immoral rubber goods, um, condoms, or materials for abortions. So he's often been talked about as somebody who is sort of puritanically afraid of sex and thus wants to regulate it, which certainly he was, but, but he's often seen as like somebody who wants to bring too much religion into public. You know, he's like a theocrat, right? He wants his religious law to be imposed on, on everybody else in order to regulate mostly their sex lives, but also other things. What I found in looking through the records of arrests that the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice did, um, yeah, they were deputized so they could, they could make arrests. Um, they're not really a government entity. They're sort of just like authorized. Was at least in the early years, in the 1870s, a huge percentage of what they did was financial crimes, anti-fraud stuff cracking down on con men and like, you know, small time swindlers doing little tricks and stuff like that. So I thought that was interesting. But anyway, what I'm getting at with, with Comstock and secularism is that he had this big ledger book for people that he arrested. And I went through it and, and I read this whole thing. And he had these different categories for their crime, what they were arrested for, where they lived, and that sort of thing, but also their ethnicity and their age and their religion. And I was really curious about some of these minority religions that popped up, or even the way that uh, the religions were described as, as heathen or Chinese or something like that, or as Catholic and how that connected to the ethnicities. Anyway, all of that. So when I say that the society had a sort of political secularism, what I mean there is that they were enforcing an idea of good religion, not like a 
theocrat or not like somebody trying to impose their particular morals on everybody. But he really argued in print and in public in a lot of different places that what he was doing was instituting a sort of secular or universal morality. It applied to everybody. Everybody should be moral because it was good for the functioning of society, right? It wasn't like Jesus told me to do this and therefore everybody has to, no, 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 like that's not the point. His point was society in order to run must be free from fraudulence and insincerity and that all of these forms of bad behavior, whether it's, he has this, this theory of like pornography as insincere because it's not genuine sex, even certain types of art for him are immoral because they're insincere. And so it's this, this kind of twin thing of regulating people by placing them into columns and rows, you know, dividing people up, subjecting them to rationalization and calculation. These are technologies of the secular. And at the same time, passing off his, what is actually quite particular morality as a universal one that, that I saw as, as secularizing moves. Yeah, that's really interesting, and um, you know maybe we can we can touch on this a little bit later on. But uh, you know what you were talking about in this chapter uh, uh, struck me initially as as contradictory, right? I mean, this this seemingly religious guy enforcing secularism or a certain version of uh, of the secular, and it uh, actually reminded me in a number of ways of uh, the argument that Finbar Curtis makes in his new book. Um, but maybe we'll we'll come around to that uh, at yeah, the end. Yeah to move on to chapters four to six, which is sort of the next uh, chunk that I uh, flagged in your book that looks at modern definitions of religion and uh, sincerity and how they come into play uh, following Supreme Court cases like Ballard in 1944 uh, and Seeger in, in, in 1965. And, uh, you know, just on a personal note, I was I was really intrigued by the case of conscientious objectors uh, in and around Seeger. And you mentioned a number of uh, other cases related to that as well. Uh, I mean, I remember when I was younger growing up, I'm from Toronto, Canada myself. And, you know, I grew up uh, knowing a few people who were conscientious objectors to the war in Vietnam. And I, I always had this assumption that they were probably not religious and therefore they didn't have a valid defense. Um, and so for listeners who, who weren't aware of this, uh, it's a really fascinating history of how definitions of religion in relation to these conscientious objection cases really change the boundaries of what counts as sincerity and belief and in, in particular religious. Um, so if you could uh, yeah, tell us something about that, that would be, uh, be great. Sure. Yeah. Th well, thank you um, for that question. I think... I was a little bit surprised to see how important the conscientious objection cases were um, when I started this research. Once I decided that I was going to write about what happens after the 40s, and a little bit of this was in the dissertation, but it was mostly later, this is all kind of new for the book, was I saw Seeger cited all the time and other conscientious objection cases, but it's strange because they're not actually First Amendment cases. They're not technically free exercise cases. They're about interpreting the draft act, um, which is, you know, I could, I could go through the whole history here, but the, the short version of it is the United States has always had, at least since the Civil War, an option to be a conscientious objector. If you get drafted into the armed services, but you don't want to fight, 
um, you know, most of the time you still have to do something. You can work in a hospital or something like that, some sort of service, but you don't have to be a combatant. Up until 1940, that was reserved only for members of, quote, historic peace churches. So Quakers, Mennonites, organizations like that, that have this long history of being pacifists. But starting in 1940, the law changed to say anybody who, by reason of religious training and belief, objected to war could count. Right. So then this opens up this whole can of worms, like, okay, what does that mean by reason of religious training and belief? Um, and so there's a bunch of court cases, there's a bunch of paperwork, bureaucracy. I try to sift through all that and write about paperwork and bureaucracy in the most interesting way I can. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, that was a, that was a writing challenge because it's, it's a lot of just like, and then this guy filled out a form and get this, they rejected the form. Like, wow. Uh, but hey, this part of my argument is this is how secularism works sometimes. This is how like the governance of religion works. It's through doing paperwork and giving it to a bureaucrat and seeing what they say about it. That's, that's just the way it is. But anyway, what happened, long story short, in 1965, there, this, there was a Supreme Court case, U.S. v. Seeger, this guy, Dan Seeger, who eventually became a Quaker, but was not at the time of his, of his filing, who he said that he had a religious belief in a purely ethical creed, and he did not affirm a belief in God or a supreme being, right? But, so he basically said, I've got this really deep, important belief. It's ethical, but I hold it religiously, right? For me, this is religion. And the Supreme Court buys that argument, actually. Um, and I go through, there's uh, chapter five is all about the, the Seeger case. Um, he donated his papers in 2014. So I was able to read all the letters back and forth and as they're kind of crafting the case. And so I try to do this sort of detailed history of how that case happens. And so what the Supreme Court says is they devise something that they called the parallel belief test, which is Seeger held his belief in a place parallel to that of a traditional believer, which is this, <laughs> Madam, curious what you think about this, but you know, what, what happens here is that it's this normative view of the human as essentially religious, or at least as essentially with the capacity to be religious, right? Traditional believers, whatever that means, Protestant believers, they've got this place inside of them in their heart or wherever you keep it, where you have your most deeply held beliefs. Other people have really deeply held beliefs in that same place or in a place parallel, but they don't necessarily have to be theistic or theological or connected to a particular denomination or doctrine or something like that. But if they're believed in the same way, and that way is individually, sincerely, seriously, you know, that counts as religion. So that was actually really pivotal in the history of free exercise, even though, like I said, it's not a free exercise case, but it almost immediately gets treated as one. Judges start to cite this and say, oh, well, if this counts as religion, then then that does, and that does, and that does, you know, what doesn't count, right? Yeah, you uh, you mentioned, I'm, I'm seeming to recall, how some of the justices involved in these cases made explicit reference to the kind of cultural changes or even cultural revolution that was happening in the 1960s and how they were dealing with what sometimes gets called uh, new age or new religious movements. Um, there's a greater recognition of what we could call religious pluralism or just a pluralism of 
uh, uh, beliefs and cultural uh, expressions and so forth. And I mean, do you think from, you know, an historical sociological perspective that they were responding to that, that recognition in some way? Yes. So chapter six gets at this some, but I think it's, it's quite a tangle. There's a lot there's a lot more to be done in this, especially like right in the 60s, because I mean, as listeners know, there's a lot of religious change going on. There's, like you said, the rise of the new age. There's also, you know, 1965, Asian immigration opens up. And so, I mean, there was already plenty of Buddhists and Hindus and, and Muslims in, in the US, but even more starting in the mid 60s. And actually, Buddhism comes up in the in the Seeger case, because in a, in a 1961 case, in a footnote, a, a, just, a Supreme Court justice had listed a number of non-theistic religions that were still real religions, including ethical culture and secular humanism. This would come back in a few cases later, where they said, oh, secular humanism is a religion, but also Buddhism. And so, you know, Dan Seeger, he's He's got this ethical belief. He doesn't believe in a God. To the Supreme Court justices, this kind of sounds like Buddhism, you know? And in fact, one of the justices, Arthur Goldberg, says, quote, the only difference between Seeger and Buddhism is that Seeger isn't a Buddhist, <laughs> which like, I love that quote. I don't even know like if it makes any sense, but uh, he's basically like, well, this guy this seems like Buddhism, basically. I mean, he's not, but it, it basically is. And if Buddhism is a real religion, well, then shoot, I guess this has to count too, right? And so, yeah, there's another, I can't remember which case it is. It might be in Seeger, but I think it's somewhere else where a judge says there are more blossoms in the theological garden than there were at the founding, right? Which is just to say, you know, you know, let a million flowers bloom. But some of our frameworks for religious freedom, religious pluralism need to be expanded. They just, they were originally conceived of too narrowly. There's so many different beliefs. There's so much religious diversity, religious pluralism going on, that in order to truly have religious freedom, we need to expand and account for that. And so that, and so one thing that I notice here is this is at the same time as the rise of religious studies as a discipline in the US and secular universities. And they draw on a lot of the same sources, including Paul Tillich and his, for anybody who's taken an intro to religion class, You've probably heard the phrase ultimate concern, which comes from this Protestant theologian, Paul Tillich, who gives a, a kind of working definition of religion as somebody's ultimate concern. You know, what's the thing that matters most to you, right? This leads to all kinds of other studies. People talk about, well, could anything be your ultimate concern? What if, you know, what if the Philadelphia 76ers are your ultimate concern? People get buried in their jerseys. You know, isn't that a religion, right? I think this leads to all this kind of like pop culture religion stuff. But anyway, judges are citing this too. And not just judges, but the conscientious objectors themselves in their paperwork that they fill out. They say, as Tillich says, religion is ultimate concern. My ultimate concern is peace and brotherhood or something like that. Thus, I object to war religiously. And they start to win, especially if... They are white and middle class and have all kinds of support from the various apparatus that can support them um, and are able to kind of translate those beliefs into the language of the law, um, but not just the law, the, the culture too. I think there's something broader going on in middle, upper middle class culture about the place of religion, the rise of pluralism, secularization, the death of God theology is like, it's all happening right in these same years in the, in the mid sixties. And so all of that kind of soup of stuff turns into this reconceptualization of who counts as the sincere believer and how the boundaries of that might 
need to expand. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Paul Tillich there because it's a nice uh, segue to the last two chapters. You draw on the work of uh, Josh, Joshua Dubler and Vincent Lloyd, uh, who refer to Tillich's normative anthropology as this yeah. orientation towards religion and the secular. And so, you know, in chapters seven and eight, the last two chapters, that brings us up to the 1980s and all the way up to the present day, where you call attention to both the, the racialization of religious freedom and sincerity. Uh, you draw on the cases of Frank Africa uh, and the more recent case of Kim Davis and what some have termed the new politics of religious freedom. So in both the Africa and, and Davis case, this uh, post-Seeger, so post-1965 understanding of sincerity and secularism were called into question, uh, you argue. So I was wondering if you could uh, tell us about these cases and um, uh, where you might stand on whether this actually does represent a, a new politics of, of religious freedom. Yeah, there's a few questions there. Briefly on Africa. So what happens after Seeger, like I said, is this huge explosion of, you know, you've got this parallel belief test, you've got, it seems like almost anything can count, right? So a lot of judges and legal scholars start to get concerned about this. They think, can anybody just do anything and say, well, it's my religion, I've got an ultimate concern, therefore I don't have to follow the law. Like that seems bad. So there's a great interest in finding some limits. So chapter seven is all about this case, um, Africa v. Pennsylvania, where uh, an incarcerated man named Frank Africa, who's a member of MOVE, which is this religious organization, um, mostly in Philadelphia. Anybody who's interested in MOVE should read um, Richard Evans's book about them, which is a fantastic work and also very Assadian work. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think Richard's book is, is so, so smart. But anyway, he's a member of, of MOVE, which is sort of this radical abolition religion. And to make a long story short, he loses his case because the judge, who has a keen interest in finding some limits, decides that he just doesn't pass muster as religious, right? Like he's got this kind of sincere belief. He seems like he has an ultimate concern, but we've got to be more specific about what counts as religion. And there's not enough formal structure they don't have like a sacred text. He gives these other things that a religion might have as a way of trying to kind of hem in what he sees as kind of the overreaches of the post-Seeger world. Now, it's not a coincidence that this happens with a black claimant, I don't think at all. And I think that part of the reason for that is that it exposes the kind of hidden or implicit whiteness of the sincere believer. There's something about Frank Africa, and it's not just his blackness, it's also his anti-capitalism, his lack of desire in translating his beliefs into secular language. Like there's other stuff going on there, but it's all kind of structured by, by blackness and anti-blackness, I think. But it exposes the kind of implicit limits on the ideal figure of the sincere believer. Right. Anybody can be a sincere believer, but it sure is easier for Dan Seeger than it is for Frank Africa. And I think there's all kinds of race and class and political reasons for that. So, yeah, so that's what I have to say about that. Uh, I mean, there's a lot more. But as far as the new politics of religious freedom, this is something I'm still trying to figure out. And actually, I mean, you might have some more to say about this because you've, you've looked at this in sort of different contexts. 
Many people are noting now that there's a lot of religious freedom cases that are about white evangelicals and Catholics discriminating against people. <laughs> and that just used to not be what religious freedom was about <laughs> for the most part. Like most religious freedom cases were about some minority religion that ran afoul of the law because they needed some accommodation or they were doing something that got outlawed by a city government and they needed some special protection, like whatever. It's stuff like that. In the last 10 plus years, many of the cases and many of the most high profile cases have been, well, cases like Hobby Lobby or Masterpiece Cake Shop. It's been white evangelicals backed by really powerful organizations with a ton of money, like the Alliance Defending Freedom, which have basically, be, I mean, ADF has become sort of like a right-wing policy shop. They have written many of the anti-trans bills um, sweeping across the U.S., do a lot of important political activism on behalf of um, right-wing causes. But they started as like, a, and still mostly function as a religious liberty law firm, where they support what they see as Christians who are being oppressed for their beliefs. And the main source of oppression is making Christians follow anti-discrimination laws. So what do we make of this? Is this actually new? Like some people have said religious freedom used to be a shield to protect people and now it's a sword to harm them. And I think that's not entirely wrong, but mostly wrong because what I'm trying to argue is that it, religious freedom has always been disciplinary. It's always been about governance. It's always been about rewarding certain ways of being and punishing others, or at least failing to reward or shutting out others. It's been about drawing lines between who's a normative citizen and, and who isn't. That's always a more or less violent process, I think. So this idea that it's like newly sword-like, I, I think is wrong. And yet there is like a real shift in how most religious freedom cases look in the last 10 years, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you, uh, you're right that the different from earlier periods, religious freedom is a feature of US culture and, and culture wars today. You also talk about in that last chapter in a, a couple of lines that really pop off the page, you know, you, you ask, why is religious freedom seemingly all about sex now? And you set up this distinction between two types of secularism, between religious freedom and, and, and sexual freedom. And it seems to me, to address the question that you, uh, you sort of threw my way before, um, without going into a lot of details and speculation, you know, certainly with the rise of, of, of social media, the ability for more people to have a voice to push back on mainstream narratives about, you know, who is a citizen, who is included, who gets to uh, be represented and so on and so forth. And of course, you know, uh, things like gay marriage being legalized, uh, trans rights, LGBTQ issues in general coming to the forefront, Black Lives Matter and so forth. There is a very clear culture war uh, where these things, it seems to me, are being you know, leaned on as mechanisms to push back, to, to, to fight that culture war in the legal terrain. Yeah, I've been really surprised at how prominent religious freedom has become, or religious liberty is usually the term they use, how prominent religious liberty has become as sort of a culture war talking point, even in religious spaces, which it just wasn't before. I mean, maybe among like Baptists in the 1820s or something, but you know, like if you went to a, a say a Southern Baptist mega church in Texas in 2005, you would not hear about religious liberty and how we need to protect our religious liberty. You very likely would now, or, you know, there's a good chance you would hear some sermon. There's a 
there's a mega church that I, I follow. Well, I'll just say because my grandparents go there. And so <laughs> they broadcast their sermons online. So sometimes I watch the sermons um, just to have something to chat with my grandma about um, after we're done talking about the White Sox. And uh, they did a whole series a couple summers ago on religious liberty. And the conclusion of it was that it's under attack and we are under attack um, again, you know, by mostly by the LGBTQ and the left broadly. That is new. And I, I, I just think like it's scholars who say, you know, there's, there's nothing new here or that, um, or that this is all kind of made up that this, this sort of fear mongering white Christians who feel oppressed are crazy because obviously they have all the cultural power. They're not oppressed. I mean, on one level, I agree with that, you know, and I also think that having to serve a trans person in your shop is not actually oppressive <laughs> to you. <laughs> I want to be clear about that. I also think like, again, just to like make my political commitments clear here in case I'm being ambiguous, I think ADF is like one of the like most evil forces in American politics, just to be clear. That being said, there are new things and there are like things going on in conservative, evangelical and Catholic um, sort of relatedly culture where they see real cultural changes and they understand that they are on the outside of a lot of them. And that feels like oppression. It's not oppression, but I see how it feels like that. And it's really interesting that they have taken up the mantle of religious freedom, which has been made so powerful and expansive, partly by this post-Seeger revolution, which was in many ways in service of minority rights, the expansion of the sincere believer, the sincere believer can do all these things to be, uh, to kind of take power, to be exempt from certain laws that oppress them, to be able to be accommodated um, by the government. This has become so powerful. And that's the tool that they have latched onto in order to kind of shore up their own waning political and cultural power, or I should say waning cultural power. I don't think it's actually waning politically, unfortunately. I don't know. Does that argument track? I think I think that's right. But there's a lot more that needs to be done to sort all that out. Oh, absolutely. Uh, super interesting stuff. I, I I really wish we had more time to unpack this. Unfortunately, we're we are coming to the end, and we, we didn't even get to come around uh, to the question of, of of your book in relation to uh, Finbar Curtis's Going Low. Although in, uh, listeners might be uh, interested that there was an interview uh, uh, with Finbar uh, on the RSP back in March, so do check that out. And and who knows, maybe we'll have you and Finbar come on at some point to uh, discuss some overlapping threads uh, in both your work. Um, but before we go, uh, could you tell us uh, what you're what you're working on now? Sure. Well, first of all, I, I just want to endorse um, Finbar's book also and say it's great and so um, skillfully argued, and I think makes a good good pairing with mine. That would be that'd be a good seminar day. Yeah. What am I working on now? Well, so as you said in the intro, I'm taking I'm starting a job at um, Eckerd College in St. Petersburg, Florida, this fall. So I will be teaching a lot. So which I'm really looking forward to. I I love teaching, and I haven't um, I've been on a research postdoc for the last couple of years, so I haven't been teaching much. So the main thing I'm going to be working on is a bunch of new classes and just reading all kinds of stuff in order to make these new classes. I'm doing a class on tolerance in the fall, um, which I'm really pumped about. But I am working on a few projects. For a number of years, I've been working on a second project on secularism and eugenics. If people are curious, I put an article in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion last year on that topic. I thought I was going to write a book about it, but now I think I won't. So I'm trying to get a few more articles out the door and then 
move on to something else, which is um, semi-secret project, uh, which is a short book of public scholarship on a totally obscure and wacky figure from the early 20th century who has never been written about and is totally nuts. And I'm trying to figure out how to write about fringe figures and how to determine the importance of somebody who has no clear historical impact, but yet seems to embody so many currents going on, in his case, in eugenics and right-wing ideology and anti-Semitism and all kinds of strange political movements in the 1920s and 30s. Um, so this guy wrote pamphlets and, and had correspondence with people and had this like massive compound. Um, and so it's this this really wacky kind of story with fantastical visions of nationwide tunnel systems and new planned economies and all of this. Um, so I'm not sure what to do with it yet, but it's, it's, um, I think it'll be a fun and maybe a little bit disturbing book. Um, and so now it's just a matter of finding as many sources as I can and, and, uh, trying to figure out what the shape of that looks like. But yeah, but the main thing is teaching and wrapping up some of these other articles. Um, and then hopefully in, some years there will be that that little popular book about uh, about my guy. Well, it sounds fascinating. Well, we uh, we look forward to uh, having you on again once once all of that is complete and, and, and hearing about these new projects. Um, yeah, I want to thank you again for for joining us today on the Religious Studies Project, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. And we'll see you all next time. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by Editor-in-Chief Andy Alexander and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Israel Dominguez and Savannah Finver, and our Opportunities Digest by Trevor Lynn. Audio editing by Alex Matthews and Nathan Springer. Podcast transcription by Ayesha Javid and Jacob Noblet, and social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links, or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, Instagram, and other portals. Thanks for listening.